Well, I hope you've been praying for me because uh, this isn't this series is not getting any easier. And uh, today, uh, I was telling somebody, uh, your your head's going to hurt today. Okay, your head's going to hurt. I told someone that, and they said I already got a headache. And I'm like, well, I, I, today may not improve that. But here's what my prayer is: as our head hurts, I pray that our hearts will, will burst, uh, burst with praise of God. Listen, if if you're going to try to understand this, you're going to fail. Uh, you're going to fail because we're looking at God and we're looking at his great wisdom, his great character, and it's beyond what we can understand. So if you try to get your head around this, uh, it, it's not going to fully get around it. But if you'll let your heart surrender to it, then you're going to have an experience of what God really desires for us. Uh, so um open-minded, don't check your brains at the door, but don't expect to be able, and, and don't think I'm going to answer all your questions. And I guess I'll, just one last disclaimer, disclaimer. Uh, I in no way um, uh, even begin to grasp all of this. My goal is one thing and one thing only, to accurately understand what God is saying in Romans 9, and just really deal with the text and not necessarily answer every question you may have or every question I may have. So let's dive into this and uh, we better just ask God one last time uh, to bless his word. Father, this is your word to us. Uh, we're here, as I said, not to hear from men, but to hear from you. And so we do pray that in this matter of salvation, you of all people know better than we do. And so we just prepare our hearts and ready our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you look at the top of your notes, what's it say? That's not fair. Now, what, what as a kid, did you ever say that to your parents? Let's just get honest, look at your neighbor there. Did you ever say, that's not fair? Now, when did you say that? When did you say that? Yeah, we ought to. You know, we we can't pick on you know uh, our our guests, you know. But I, you know, I asked Vicky there. You know, Vicky, what do you think? Did you ever say that's not fair? We all say that, right? Did you say that as a kid? When did you say that? Anytime something didn't go your way, right? Exactly. We tend to say this, especially when someone gets to do something we don't, right? Hey. You know, especially with siblings. I mean, that's where it really comes in. Hey, she got to do this. He got to do that. That's not fair. And what did your parents say to you? Life's not fair. And that's really true. I mean, you know, it's really funny. We come into the area of salvation. We come into the area of what we're talking about here in Romans 9, unconditional election. And we just want God to be be fair in a way, and let's just get honest, in a way that nothing else in life is that way. And uh, we don't parent that way, but why do we expect, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we kind of hold God to a standard that uh, is, is, is just not real, you know, and, and I don't want to go too far on that, but it's just interesting. Or another time we say that's not fair as a kid is when we got punished for something that someone else gets away with, right? You know, and, 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 and that's just kind of the way it is. So, you know, um, I, I won't say who, but, you know, on our staff, we have a young 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 man who who has a you know kind of energetic spirit right i won't use any name there's a, there's a staff pastor that has a, a son that energetic spirit so he you know he gets he gets disciplined pretty hard around here right rightly so well then on wednesday you know we have our trek kids come in and they do some pretty wild spirited things and uh pastor bruce was telling me how 
how uh, you know Jack didn't feel you know like the like they these kids were getting away with stuff that he you know you know I that, that what was he saying? That's not fair. And yet you know to hold uh, the same standards in those two you know two totally different settings, different people you know it just hey listen we all say that now parents. How many of you hear this from your own kids, right? I mean, they, now they're saying it to you. Well, here's the point. We tend to want justice for others, don't we? We want justice for others. They should be punished like I think they should be. In other words, we want others to get what they deserve or they, they deserve what I, what I got, right? That's, that's the idea there. Or we tend to want mercy for ourselves or people we think are deserving of it. Now, that right there is an oxymoron. They deserve mercy. Now, why is that an oxymoron? If you deserve it, it's not mercy. And yet, how many of us think that way? If someone doesn't get mercy that we think deserves it, we say, that's not fair. Right? Or... Now, who do we, not only do we want mercy for ourselves or people we think deserve it, we want mercy especially for people that we like. The people we don't like, what do we want them to get? Justice, because they deserve it. And the people we do like, we want them to get mercy. Why? Because they deserve it. Now, something's not right in that. Think through that. Something's not right in that. Here's what it says in your notes. We tend to want choices to be made on what we think we deserve, and in parentheses, put their mercy, or what others deserve, which we think is justice. Now, that's just a fact of life. We tend to want choices to be made on what we think we deserve, or what others, which is mercy, or what others deserve, which is justice. Now, even when it comes to God's mercy and grace, we tend to approach God with the attitude, I know this is all about grace and mercy, but I still deserve it. Am I right? And the longer, I believe that you, uh, there's two things that can happen. The longer you're a Christian, the more you can think you can deserve it. But what ought to happen is the longer you're a Christian, the more you ought to realize you don't deserve it. We're kind of all mixed up inside, I think. And we think things like this. And if we got really honest, this is what we often think. I am the most deserving, undeserving sinner I know. Now, this brings me to the parable of the workers. Because I just want to show you that there's this idea that we deserve grace that we deserve mercy, and that's what's going to get us into Romans 9 today. Because in Matthew 21 through 16, you have the parable of the workers, and I don't want to get bogged into it. I just want to say this. you Most of you remember the parable. Uh, the landowner comes and he hires people early in the morning, uh, pre-dawn, and he says, look, work for me for one day and I'll give you a day's wages. They said, great, we're on it, and off they work. And then every three hours, he goes out and he finds more people that aren't working until finally at 5 p.m., which means there's only one more hour of a, in a Jewish day to work. And at 5 p.m., he finds some guys standing around that still haven't gotten any work. And he says, look, why are you guys standing around? You know, let's, let's get an hour's worth of work in here, and I'll pay you whatever, 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 I, whatever I choose to. 
you know, and they're like, hey, you know, I haven't worked all day. I'll go for that. And so they go and work. And then it's time to pay. It's the end of the day and it's time to pay. And he calls the last ones first. And he says, I'm going to pay you guys first. And he pays them what? A full day's wages. Now, what do the guys that worked all day in the hot, searing sun, what do they do? That's not fair. That's not fair. And, and, and the landowner rebukes him because he says, first of all, I told you I'd pay you a full's day and I paid you a full day. Why are you complaining? And then furthermore, why are you grumbling that I gave these guys a full day when all of it belongs to me? Now, that doesn't exactly parallel with what we're seeing, but at least it shows you this idea that the idea of others getting what they, what they don't deserve Others not getting what they do deserve, it creates a grumbling heart that wants to say wrongly, that's not fair. And that's what we've come to this morning. In our lesson this morning, it has our lesson this morning has to do with the ideas of fairness and justice, what's right and what's wrong in God's choosing some to be saved and not choosing others. Last week's lesson. But what, are we, but what we're going to see over the next two Sundays is this. Mercy is only for the undeserving, and justice is always for the deserving. And those two groups are the same. Mercy is always for the undeserving, and justice is always for the deserving. Now, because God is gracious and sovereign, he gets to choose who receives what and how. And we got to keep in mind what the overall point of Romans 9 through 11 is. So let's, let's look at this. Romans 9 through 11 is all tied together. And Paul's trying to answer one question. So every lesson, we're going to go back. What's the crucial question? The question lies in Romans 9, 6. And the question is this. Has God's word, his saving promises to Israel, have they failed? in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment. Now, that's a very practical... See, people want to look at Romans 9 through 11 and says, let's skip that and get to the practical part, Romans 12. But the reality is this. If you're an Israelite and you've rejected Messiah, this is a very relevant question because you're headed for hell or you're already doomed to hell. I think that's a rather important question for these people. But we've already shown it's an important question for us as Christians because it's tied to Romans 8 where God has made the same promises to us that we're eternally secure in Christ. And if he breaks his promises to Israel, then he can break his promises to us. So this is a very practical, crucial question. Now, how does the answer unfold? I have it there in your notes. Last week's lesson, we saw that the first question was, has God's word failed? Verse 6, the answer is no. God's promise of salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional choice. The focus of that passage, the reason God's word hasn't failed, is because we're chosen. Chosen by his sovereign grace. But, last week's lesson raises a question. Is that really fair? Right? Isn't that the question? And that's the question we're going to look at today in verse 14. Is God unfair in choosing unconditionally? Is that, uh, is that basically unfair? And the answer that we're going to see over these next two weeks is this. No, unconditional election reflects 
the perfection of God's character in all his fullness. And the perfection that it especially highlights is his mercy. So today's lesson is mercy for the fame of his name. Let's take a look at Romans 9, 14 through 18. Believe it or not, we're going to hopefully, we're only going to get through half of this. I wanted to get through the whole thing. But, I mean, we're going to be good to understand two verses today. Well, anyway, let me keep going. 14 through 18. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see why mercy is... For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name, and that's crucial, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Remember last week's theory, uh, theme? Sent to all peoples for the fame of his name. That's it right there. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he will. Now, verse 14 is an objection. It's a question. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an objection. And here's what I want you to see in your notes. Unconditional election, as revealed in the Bible, raises three basic objections in our human reasoning. If you approach unconditional election from a human reasoning, these are three objections. And let's look at them. The, question, the first question is the question you see in verse 14, the question of fairness. The question of fairness. That's not fair. Is God unfair or unjust in choosing unconditionally those who will be saved by grace through faith in Christ? This is the objection in verse 14 that he answers in that paragraph all the way down to verse 18. The second objection is this, the question of fate. The question of fate. Or you could say fatalism. In other words, if if God is, if, if no one resists God's will, if God is sovereign over this whole thing, then doesn't that make me a robot? Doesn't that make me a puppet? I mean, what's the use, right? Verse 19. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So the first objection is a question of fairness we're going to deal with today. Second question is a question of fate or fatalism. If it's all determined, I just might as well not get up in the morning, right? And the third question is the question of faith or free will. The question of faith or free will. That is, well, if all this is determined by God, if if, if he elects, then, then what's the use in preaching the gospel? Why should we evangelize? Where's my faith come in? Where's my free will? Where's my choice in all this? And interestingly enough, in uh, verse 30, in the final conclusion, he addresses this idea. He says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by what? By faith. So here's what I want to tell you. Anytime that we teach this doctrine, this biblical doctrine, these are going to be the three objections. These are going to be the three objections. And what I find interesting is 
Paul addresses them in this chapter. In other words, it, if you're teaching unconditional election, this is how people are going to respond in our human reasoning. And what I love about the Bible is it doesn't, it doesn't dodge those questions. Well, there they are. Now, what's going to happen is God himself is going to answer those questions, but it may not be the way we want him to. We may still, at the end of the day, say, I don't think that's fair, but we better be careful that we're not the parable of the workers, that we are not grumbling against God's sovereignty and his graciousness and saying where he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with that which belongs to me? So, interesting. Now, second thing that I have there in your notes, these objections are to be expected. They're to be expected whenever unconditional election is taught. And I want to give you three reasons why I think that is. These objections are to be expected. Well, we know they're expected because they're right there in the Bible, and I showed you all three of them. But why is that? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, it's a doctrine God must reveal to his people. It's a doctrine that God must... Here's the bottom line. The doctrine of unconditional election, just like every other biblical doctrine, comes from above. You know, men do not sit around and come up with this stuff. Women do not have a get-together and say, let's figure out who God is. No, it comes down from above. And so... Human reasoning will never arrive at a proper understanding of God and his ways of fulfilling his saving promises. Go to first, I mean, don't turn there, but think in your mind, 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, The natural man does not receive the things of God because only the spirit of God can interpret them. So my, my point is, if we approach these truths in our own reasoning, with our own wisdom, with our own expectations, we're always going to get frustrated and we're going to end up saying, that's not fair, that's fatalism, and that that, that eliminates my free will when none of those things are true. Secondly, oh, and let me just say this, and, 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 and hopefully we can see this as we move through this chapter. When Paul's reasoning in, in, in Romans 9 is very logical, Therefore, thus, so then. I mean, that's logical, and it's a tight argument. And, and in fact, 9 through 11 is, is connected all the, way from, all the way through. It's a tight argument. But his argument does not rely on human reasoning or philosophy or theological systems. In other words, he doesn't say, now, this is the way it is because, and then starts philosophizing. He doesn't say, this is the way it is, and then he starts saying, uh, uh, you know, there's this theological system and it spells out a flower and, and it all works together just like this. You know what he does every time? You saw it last week and you're going to see it again this week. He says, here's how it is, and then he quotes scripture. Now, let me tell you a really cool thing that God impressed upon me the last couple of weeks. He not only quotes scripture, he quotes scripture where God is talking. Now, Richard's far wiser than me. So, Richard, I don't. what do you call that when Scripture is quoting God? It's like Scripture on Scripture. It's like super Scripture. It's super Scripture. Because it's not just God inspiring through these. I mean, it's not, you know, if, you know it's, it's like Jesus' words in red, right? 
Well, there's word, there ought to be words in red in the Old Testament because there's quotes of God speaking. Well, this is what's amazing in Romans 9. When he defends this, he says, it isn't Paul philosophizing. It isn't Paul theologizing. It is Paul saying, God said this, and then he quotes God. So, you know, some people get in these chapters and they get all hung up on men called with weird names like, you know, Calvin and Arminius and and all these guys. And and Paul says, look, who you need to deal with is God. Because here's what he said. Now, granted, we can misinterpret what God says, but my point is he supports this with the very words of God. Very interesting. Revelation. Number two, it's a doctrine our flesh will always rebel against. It's a doctrine our flesh, listen, listen. Just in the work world, if someone comes up to you and tells you, I'm going to do this, what do you, what, how do you react to that? Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so happy that you have exerted your will in that way. You know, what, what do we say to that? I mean, even if they have every right to say, I'm going to do that. But when someone comes to you and just tells you what they're going to do, with no lead up to that, how, how, does you, how do you respond? Huh? Okay. All right, well, you're, you're a more godly person than me, Donna. How, 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 do, how do you respond? Come on. Let's, how do you respond? Well, yeah, you, you're just like, you know, who died and put you in charge today? You know, it's just like, okay, great. Listen, our fallen nature rebels against God and his sovereign ways in dealing with us. Listen, that's just true. In some ways, Well, let me put it this way, and I got this from reading Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he said about these passages, and this really gives me comfort. He says, you know you're teaching Romans 9 correctly when people respond with these objections. In other words, if you teach last week on unconditional election, if I taught that in a way that you walked out of here going, well, that just makes perfect sense. That's just, just, that's just, that's the way I always thought God was. And that just all fits into my, my thinking. If you walked out that way last week, I didn't teach it as Paul wrote it. Because what Paul wrote raised an objection. And what was the objection? That's not fair. So what that tells me is if you left last week thinking that's not fair, then I did my job of properly teaching that passage. Are you with me? And I'm already tell you what you're going to say after today and next week. If I teach it properly, what are you going to say after today and next week? Look at verse 19. This is what you're going to say. If, in your human reasoning, if I teach this correctly, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You're going to say to me, well, that makes us robots, Chris. You're, that makes us puppets. That's, that, that just can't be. Why? Because our flesh and human reasoning rebel against What did Adam and Eve want to be in the garden? I will know and I will be, I will know and I will be, I will be like God. And what got Satan, what, where, where, what got Satan in trouble? You go back to Isaiah, it's either Isaiah or Ezekiel, I'm sorry, I don't know which one, Ezekiel, where he says the I wills. And I think it was either five or seven, I should have checked, but I, he, here's what he said, I will. I will, I will, I will. I will be exalted like the Most High. I will. 
See, that's the nature of sin. Sin has an I in the center of it. It's my will. And so when you start teaching, well, here's what God does in salvation. The flesh just says, I don't like that. Okay. Um, And let me just say this. On this question of it's not fair. If God based his election on what he knew you would choose, if he based his choice on your choice, then he would have said it right here. Because if someone says unconditional election is not fair, but you know that unconditional election is based on God knowing what you would do, what would be the most logical thing to do if someone said that's not fair? Oh, it is fair because his choice is based on his knowledge of your choice. That would be, this would be the place to say it. Does he say that? He says, oh, you think unconditional election is not fair? Then let me tell you what it's based on. I will have mercy on whom I will have You and I aren't even in the picture. Now, we get in the picture, verse 30, but we can't put ourselves in the picture before we get to the picture, in the picture. All right. I told you your head would hurt, but I hope your heart's bursting already. Number three. It's not only a doctrine that God must reveal. It's not only a doctrine our flesh will rebel against. And believe me, me and God are struggling all the way through it. Because here's the tension. The tension is you're teaching this is, Lord, I, I, I want to get in there and, and kind of help you out with this. Because these people are going to, they, they may not like this. And a lot, whole commentaries have been written that way to explain some of this stuff away. And that does no one any good. If God has not revealed it that way. Number three, it's a doctrine that many refuse to address. It's a doctrine. Some of the, many of our objections is simply due to the fact that we've never been taught this. People refuse to address this. And the reason, and there's a lot. So sometimes our objections is due to ignorance. I had just never been taught this. And when we get new information, how do we respond? Typically, we typically do not go, oh, new information that I now have to balance everything I ever, you know, I mean, we, we don't respond that. We don't like new information. We want everything to fit into our perceived categories. Also, some refuse to deal with it because they think it's divisive. Now, you know, well, yeah, yeah. Last time I checked, any doctrine of God is divisive. Uh, you know, are we going to ignore the deity of Christ just because it's divisive? I mean, is that, you say, well, that's not divisive. We all agree on that. Really, they had a whole church council trying to work through that. You know, I mean, we we can't ignore things just because they're divisive. What that does tell us, we need to be humble. We need to be speak the truth in love. We need to admit that uh, we don't have all the answers. I'm trying to do that. For, but at the same time, don't fault me for passion. You know, because when you study something, you can become convinced of it and you become passionate. So, often we ignore it. And then sometimes we, we just ignore it out of fear. Because let's just be honest. We kind of like God being in it. And we can take him. We kind of like, you know, J.B. Phillips wrote a book a long time ago, Your God is Too Small. But we kind of like that because then we're bigger than God. And when God gets out of that box... And when God gets bigger than what we ever imagined, on this very doctrine, I had a pastor that said, you know, I just can't go there. 
Because if I do, that, that would just blow my mind about how who God really is. And, 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 and I don't fault the man for saying that, but what it revealed was maybe your mind needs to be blown. Mine does. My mind gets blown every time I open this book. Because he's never the way I think he ought to be. All right. Now, the structure of the passage is easy to outline. Oh, I wish it was that easy to understand. Okay, look at the outline. Very easy. I just sat there and, you know, and I'm like, well, this is so easy. Then you have to go to teach it. And you're like, oh, my gosh. How can something so easy be this hard to understand? You know, and some would say, that's because you're teaching it wrong. No, I don't think that. The structure of the passage is easy to outline, but understanding its meaning is hard. It's hard. I freely confess that. Here's the outline. First, there's the objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Then there's the correction. By no means. You got it wrong. That is a wrong conclusion from the teaching of unconditional election. Then there's the explanation and conclusions. And there's two explanations. They each begin with the the word for, for he says to Moses, here's why that conclusion is wrong. Then he draws the right conclusion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then he gives a second explanation for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and he read through there. Then he draws his conclusion. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, how simpler can you get than that? But what's it mean? Well, let's take a look at it. how far we get. Number one, the objection. Let's look at the objection. What shall we say then? Now, Paul repeatedly uses this throughout the book of Romans, and he does so for either clarification or correction. In other words, he will be teaching something, then he says, look, what shall we say then? Let me clarify what I just said. But other times he uses this phrase, what shall we say then, for correction, because he'll say, okay, I just taught this truth. What shall we say then? He then presents a wrong conclusion, and then he corrects it and says, by no means, don't go there. Now, he's done this several times already in the book. For instance, and it's the same principle. If you really teach grace, what will people say if you really teach grace? The way Romans teaches it. People will say, well, then we can just go out and sin. And he says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Do we sin that grace may abound? By no means, not at all. You drew the wrong conclusion. But there's a good reminder. If you teach grace, people will think you're teaching that you can sin. Now, here's the wrong conclusion. Uh, oh, let me t- turn to Romans 3, 5, one other time where this is used. And I really like this one because I think that's what's happening here, even though it's not stated. But at least you can see that it does happen. Look at Romans 3, 5. So I gave you a couple examples, Romans 6, Romans 7. Romans 7 was this, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? No, no, no. The law brings out sin, but the law isn't sin. You got that wrong. Well, look at Romans 3, 5. He basically uses the same phrase here to present a wrong conclusion that's consistent, though, with how humans think. Look at what he says, Romans 3, 5. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then he says, this conclusion, I speak in a human way. See, what he's saying is, that's a conclusion that your human reasoning is going to come to, and it's a wrong one. And I'm just telling you, the same thing, I believe, is happening in Romans 9. He has just taught unconditional election. Human reasoning is going to say, that's not fair. And he's going to say, that's a wrong conclusion. You're thinking too human. Not submitting to the revelation that's given. Now, here's the objection. Is there no injustice? There is no injustice with God, is there? Um, I gave you the New American Standard translation because it's the most literal, and I think it's, it's very accurate at this point. There is no injustice with God, is there? What's the, what's the answer he expects? There is no injustice with God. What's he expect you to say? No, no, no. And I love how there, there's some really interesting things here. Um, the word for injustice or unrighteousness there is the word for righteous with a negation in front. It's unrighteousness. That's the word. It's the word for righteousness. And he's simply saying there is no unrighteousness with God. Now, here's what's interesting. The only other time that this word unrighteous is used in the Greek Old Testament is three times. In, I mean, the three times that it's used in reference to God all in reference to God, the three times, is all saying very clearly, there is no unrighteous. So in other words, we all agree, God would never do anything unjust. He would never do anything unrighteous. See, we all agree with that. The problem then is, we think we know what that means. And then when we hear something that we think is unrighteous, we say, well, that can't be because we know over here, God is always righteous. And so the way he says this is very sensitive to his Jewish believers that he's talking to or even Gentile believers. The point is this. Okay, we know God is righteous, but Paul, you just told us something that makes it sound that he's being unrighteous. But that can't be. So that kind of begs the question that one of three things kind of need to change. Kind of moving around a little bit here on my notes because I think it makes sense. Either our interpretation of Romans 9, 6 through 13 needs to, is wrong. In other words, 9, 6 through 13, and you know, if God's righteous and this sounds unrighteous, then maybe I misinterpreted 9, 6 through 13. And it really doesn't talk about unconditional election to salvation. That is a possibility, and there's good men that disagree with that. I have tried, and I'm taking loads of time to defend what I think is the biblical view so that I'm not just forcing it on you or, or telling you, I'm showing you Scripture. I think I showed the last two weeks that that is unconditional election. So I don't think that's what needs to change. Second thing that might need to change is our understanding of God and his righteousness. We may tend to be too man-centered in how we view how God does things. Now, how many think that's a likely? Okay, very likely. All right. 
I, notice I didn't ask you to vote on my interpretation. Didn't vote on that. Uh, you came back, so I assume you know there's a certain matter of trust there. We may be too man-centered in our view of God, having made him too much in our image according to our reasoning versus revelation. Now, that's a huge possibility. Second thing that might need to change is simply thinking that unconditional election is inconsistent with God's character. And that's the heart of the issue. And that's where Paul's going to go. He's going to go and say, look, When I teach unconditional election, I know what you're going to say. That's not fair. That's not consistent with God's character. And what I'm going to show you now in verses 14 through 18 is that unconditional election is consistent with God's character because God's character is more than anything known for mercy for the fame of his name. And mercy is what you don't. Well, if I don't deserve it, then how can I say it's unfair? Oops. Okay, that's starting to make sense. Doesn't answer all the questions, and I don't pretend to. I'm just saying scripture. Saying scripture. All right, so that's the objection. Now, what is it that God has done that appears to not to be right or just or fair? I think we have gathered, we know it's the previous paragraph. It's his purpose. Uh, to fulfill his saving purpose according to unconditional election. Verse 11 is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with verse 11. Not according to works, but according to the one who calls that my purpose of election may stand. What? Now here's, and then this is probably is we're just going. Uh, first of all, let me add, I mean, to, with all sincerity, is this helpful? This is all pre-stuff, but here's what I think. I think this pre-stuff's important. Is it helping? No. Just that I'm getting you all primed, and then we're not going to make it. Um, and I won't be able to prime you again next year. We're, uh, next week. We're Next year. Oh, Lord, please. Uh, I won't be able to prime you next week because we're just going to dive into it. But I, here's what I, all I'm putting on. Listen, listen. All I am putting on paper is the wrestling that I'm doing in my study. And it's not just my study. I have people that I love, that I witness to. I, as you know, have some friend, a friend just recently committed suicide. These are real issues for me, and I know they are for you. This isn't just me and my study with my books. But I'm sharing with you my struggles, and I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and say, now how can I help them? How can I help them through this process? They're tired. Some of them have headaches. You know, they, they haven't been thinking of Romans 9 all week. How can I bring them along? And so I am taking time to do that. Now, you got to tell me feedback. Hey, you're killing us. Just dive into it. Okay, I'll, I can do that as well, as long as I know you're tracking with me. So let's look at what is it that God's done that appears not to be right or not fair or not just? It's verse 11. Let me read it. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, human reasoning says that's not fair. That can't be the way it is because there is no unrighteousness with God. Now, this next point is what we'll end with. 
but it is crucial. It is crucial because it sets the stage for these these four verses. <laughs> what? How can it be this difficult? You know why? For the reason I already told you, we rebel against it. It's God's revelation, and, and, and we're getting to who God really is. And listen, we don't have a clue who he is unless he reveals it. So let's take a look. at What is the standard of righteousness, justice, and fairness? Because here's the beauty, and anytime you're witnessing to a postmodern person, that's wrong. What should you say? shouldn't immediately, you know, contradict. I mean, when someone says that's not fair, what should be the first question we should ask? What? Exactly. What is fair to you? Exactly. And so let's get to the root of that. What's that? What, what are, what, what's a simple way of saying that? What's your standard of fair, right? What is fair to you? Meaning what you're asking that person is, what is your standard of righteousness? So the immediately, immediately, someone says, that's not fair. And you start, yes, it is fair. Ah, 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 ah. Well, you, you know where you, why you're never going to get anywhere? Because his standard of fairness and your standard of fairness are two different things. And until you know that you have the same standard, it's not going to resolve. See, once you say, oh, if that's your standard of fairness, then you're right in what you're saying. And they ought to be able to say to you, well, if that's your standard of fairness, then that's what's right, right? Is your head hurting? So, when someone says, that's not fair, that's unrighteous, that's unjust, we should ask in this passage, what is the standard of fairness? Well, I think there's really only three options. There might be more, but I think there's three. The world standard. Now, what's the odds of the world agreeing with what God reveals and saying it's fair? Zippo, okay? So if we're using the world standard, the other standard would be our own standard, right? Well, I'm a Christian, so my standard must be right. Well, no, not necessarily any more than the next guy. What's the third standard? God's standard. So if we're really going to arrive at what's fair and right, then we've got to use God's standard. And the answer to that lies in the paragraph that we are studying. And let me give you the answer. What is God's standard of what is fair, just, and right? Romans 3.23. I mean, let me, I'll, I, this, now I'm short-circuiting it. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I'm going to pull up Paul and just quote scripture. What is God's standard? Romans 3.23. And you guys use this when you witness. For all have fallen short of what? The glory of God. And you and I both know that when we witness, we say to people, look, you may be better than me. I may be better than you. But that's not the standard. What's the standard? God's glory. God's character, God's perfection, God's name, which is his fame, is the standard. So really, what is the standard? The standard, and you have it there in your notes, the standard of righteousness 
is his own revelation of himself, his own name, which is his character, and his fame, which is his glory. Now, just to give you, since uh, the, to help the Smiths out, since they, they, they may come back next week, just to, just to, to figure. Now, you shouldn't laugh that much. Uh, they might just come back to do it, but you, you can download it on the web, okay? Um, do you see what happens in verses 15 through 18? What does he reference? Well, first of all, he references Exodus 33, 19. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we're going to see next week, you know where that comes from? That comes from Moses when he says, show me your glory. And God says, I will proclaim my name and I will pass all my goodness before you. And part of that name and part of that character and part of that goodness is I will have mercy on whom I will. See, he's using God's name as the standard for what's Say, well, is that true? Drop down to verse 17. What is the next quote that he uses? This is also from Exodus, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power, my my glory, my my character in you. But then he makes it clear, and that my what? Name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, look, here's why I do everything I do. For the fame of my name. That's the standard. Okay. So then what's that beg us to to do? First of all, it challenges me and you. Do I know God's name? Do I really know his character? Oh, I may have taken some theology courses like I have in school, and you may have listened to a lot of sermons. We may have a conception of God's character and how he is and what he does. And I bet you've all read Exodus at one time or another. And you've read these verses. But did we comprehend that in the revelation of God's character in these verses, God is saying that the very essence of who I am is the freedom to show mercy to whomever I choose. This is who I am. Now, what does that do for us? It does two things. It eliminates this idea that somehow unconditional election is performed by some meanie in the sky who's just out dangling people over hell and snatching up others and just, you know, (laughs) the merciful God whose very character is to show mercy to So, first of all, it eliminates this idea of fate. This isn't some, this, this isn't Allah, this deterministic God who's just up there judging, puppeteering. This is, a, this is Yahweh who pours out mercy, whose very inclination and propensity is to show mercy. This is what he, this is who, we kept hearing this, like, this is who he is, this is what he does. That's the first thing. It then the second thing, thing that we struggle with. 
because he's God. He's free to do that. He chooses. That's the one we struggle with. You know what? If he's not free to do it as he chooses, do not want to come back. So next week, what we're going to do, we may be able to do both, which I'd prefer to do. We're going to look at his first explanation, which is Moses. It's a positive. Then we're going to look at the second explanation, which is Pharaoh. And that's where, pardon the pun, that's where it gets hard. Why? Because he's talking about the hardening of Pharaoh. This gives me a whole nother week, struggle with God. Struggle with the text. See, I, it breaks my heart that we would ignore these passages. God didn't ignore them. He wrote them. And he wrote it, and I spent three, four weeks. He wrote them in a missionary book because he's a missionary God. And so God help us. To not resist or rebel, but to rest God's revelation of him. Knowing that we can't figure it all out, knowing that I can't answer all of my questions, much less yours. But I don't know about you, but I'm leaving this class, this hour, with a heart bursting. My God is so merciful, and he's so much bigger than what any human. And in that mercy, he revealed himself to me. He has revealed himself to you. So I end with this. If you're not sure of your salvation, be assured of this. It is God's character. Show mercy. Call on his name. Throw your sins upon Jesus. That's where they are already. Died for your sins. Trust him. And he will cleanse you, he will forgive you, he will show mercy to you, and he will give you eternal life. That's yours. If you will but ask him, that's the one you've got to ask. Father, we thank you. Uh, I thank you for the the privilege of teaching your word to these. Um, it's It's a heavy duty at times, but it's a blessing. Because we have your word. I don't have to come up with this stuff. It's yours. So I pray that you would you, you would percolate this stuff this week. That you would you would use this to move us towards a better understanding of who you are and what you do, so that we can become more like who you are and we can do more of what you do, and that is proclaim your name to all people. We pray this in the glorious name. The name that is above all names, the name of Jesus.